The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Thanks for listening and being a part of The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, some breaking news for you, and it's out of Iowa. Um, This comes as really no surprise, but given what has gone on in the last 48 hours, um, it is exceptional that we're hearing about it now and not beforehand. But biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy has suspended his bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination on Monday and endorsed former President Donald Trump after finishing a disappointing fourth in Iowa's leadoff caucuses. Uh, Ramaswamy said he made the decision after determining there was no path forward for him in the race. Quote, absent things that we don't want to see happen in this country. The 38-year-old political novice who sought to replicate Trump's rise as a bombastic wealthy outsider said he called the former president early Monday evening to congratulate him on his victory in Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in second with former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley just behind in third. Now, Ramaswamy said, according to AP, now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. And I think we're going to do the right thing for this country. And so I'm going to ask you to follow me in taking our America First movement to the next level. That's from Ramaswamy, and that is just being reported about five minutes ago on AP. Ramaswamy is no longer in the race to become the GOP candidate. Uh, We have got three. Then there were three. And it made no sense when he was excluded from the debate that he would march on. He pulled most of his advertising from television and his poll numbers were in single digits, which mean he couldn't take part in that last debate. It was only DeSantis and Nikki Haley debating. It was at that point that people were expecting him to pull out, but he has pulled out after coming forth in the Iowa Uh, count. So there you have it. That is breaking news. Now, interesting from the Build newspaper, and I occasionally have a look at what Build reports on, the English version of it. Well, Europe is preparing for Russian President Vladimir Putin to expand his country's war in Ukraine and attack NATO ally countries next year. This is according to leaked documents published in the German newspaper Build. According to the outlet, which obtained the classified military information from the German Ministry of Defence. The country's armed forces are gearing up for a hybrid Russian attack in Eastern Europe. The newspaper detailed how multiple potential alarming scenarios could unfold in the months ahead. One such scenario, dubbed Alliance Defence 2025, would start this February with Russia mobilising an additional 200,000 soldiers. Emboldened by Western financial support for Ukraine drying up, Russia would then launch a massive spring offensive against Ukrainian armed forces. The potential scenario outlines how Russia could start waging war in the Baltics by July using severe cyber attacks while stirring up discontent among Russian nationals in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. By September, according to these documents, those clashes, the classified documents show, could then be used by Russia as an impetus to unleash 
ZARPAD 2024, a large-scale military exercise that would amass some 50,000 Russian soldiers in the west of the country and Belarus. Now, from there, the scenario describes Russia could move troops and mid-range missiles to Kaliningrad um, and then attack both NATO members Poland and Lithuania. By December, according to the plot, a worst-case scenario exercise, Russia could then take advantage of the transition period following the US presidential election and use propaganda proclaiming fictional border conflicts or riots with numerous deaths to incite violence in the uh, in the in the border borderline areas. So there you have it. Look, only plans, only documents that have fallen fallen off the back of a truck. Uh, but I guess all scenarios have to be mapped out. And just going back to what Joe Syracuse said at the beginning of our program, he said, who's pulling the strings above Iran? It would not surprise me that Russia had some say in when and how attacks would be launched on October 7 against Israel. You think about what that means for Russia. That means that the United States all of a sudden focuses on a separate war and takes its eye off Ukraine, and that includes the public, and the public um, dictate to the US government that they do not want further ammunition, resources, money being sent to Ukraine. That benefits Russia immensely. That makes the dominance that they have in uh, in those uh, war front areas secured by Russia because all of a sudden he meets much less resistance. And it wouldn't surprise me. Now, if that's not the case, it would not surprise me that Russia would be helping Iran now expand the fight outside of Gaza to ensure that the US was 100% committed to the Middle East and took their eyes entirely off the war in Ukraine. That would not surprise me that the two wars are linked and that link could be Vladimir Putin. Stranger things have happened in military history. This is TNT. Bringing you a world view. I like to hear what's going on around the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, let's get down under now. And uh, I have got on the line Senator representing the Liberal Party in New South Wales, Holly Hughes. Holly, welcome to the program. Hi, Smithy. Are you well? I am. I'm very well. I'm actually having my last week of holidays this week. I was back last week, but just got the kids down at the beach for a bit of a final hurrah before back to school. How good is that? Yeah, because you you work so tirelessly, as do most politicians, despite us, um, you know, sort of smacking politicians for not working hard enough. But you do. We know that. We accept I know, but that. I've, I've picked the worst week in the world. The weather is just appalling. Oh, oh is it? So you'd be pleased to know I didn't. You didn't have to pull me off the beach today. So I, right. uh, I tried to take my sixteen-year-old for a driving lesson. So I think I've aged about ten years in the last couple of hours. Oh no, no! I did that with my eldest, and it's the worst thing you could possibly do. They oh. don't believe that you know stuff, Ollie. They don't <laughs> no. believe it, and they're not a hundred percent sure where the side of the car is when they're driving. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
The Prime Minister of the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, have unveiled a $206 million package today to offer more social housing properties and energy-saving upgrades to lower power bills. The scheme will offer upgrades such as heat pump hot water systems, ceiling fans, reverse cycle air conditioners, solar systems, insulation and draft proofing and is designed to save some families up to $600 a year. Now, I have two comments to make about this. I'm interested to hear what you think. One, better late than never. But two, does this really go and add uh, benefit, economic, financial benefit to the pockets of those doing it tough? Look, no, it absolutely doesn't. And I mean, it's just typical of this Labor government that all they can focus on is, again, pushing their ideological renewable energy projects uh, further and further. It's going to do nothing for energy prices. Uh, We keep being told renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, yet we've got more renewables in the system than ever and everyone's power bills are going up. The thing is as well, cost of living pressures are a day-to-day absolutely in the moment now issue for most families. And the fact that this is rolling out over four years, uh, I think it's 30,000 households in New South Wales. Most of it is going to be social housing. So I appreciate that there's a lot of people who are living on welfare payments or in social housing that are experiencing cost of living pressures the same as everyone else, if not more so. But there's a there's a working poor forming in Australia. There seems to be zero ability of this government to focus its attentions on those families in middle Australia, those with a mortgage, working two incomes, who since this government have come to power with interest rate rises and all the other inflationary increases to everyday items, are now having to find an extra $25,000 a year. Yeah. And there's just nothing that this government is doing to help alleviate the stress and strain on those families. And in fact, you know, there's been a lot of talk earlier this week about the tax three, uh, stage three tax cuts. These are the exactly the families who are most likely to benefit from those tax cuts, mm. yet the Prime Minister won't even fully commit to ensuring that they will be delivered on the 1st of July, mm. uh, just, you know, despite the Labor government promising after voting for them that they would keep them. You see, I can I can think we had this discussion um, over a dinner about five days ago with some friends about what the federal government could do, and I'm just throwing these on the table right now. One, they could get the the the, the premiers and the territory ministers in a room, uh, you know, one of these coag kind of meetings, and say, "Hey, listen, we will help you um, cut the price of say." Um, uh, car insurance or or green slips for every single Australian by half for two for two periods of a year. So for a whole year, we will go halves in that with you, but you've got to contribute. That's one thing you could do because they are things that people have to pay for. It's not like as if, oh, well, I'll go and get solar power and so therefore it'll be cheaper for me because we're doing it tough. No, they don't want to spend extra money. They want to work out what they have to pay and whether they can pay less. The other thing they could do is 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 come up with the banks to 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 pause certain mortgages that are in um, uh, some kind of debt or some kind of payment um, alarm and say, hey, listen, the federal government will come to your assistance for a period of three months until you get back on your feet. Like there are things that they could come up with to physically make a difference to someone's pocket right now who who are, have shown. Uh, and illustrated how tough they are doing it, but they've come up with absolutely nothing. This is BS. Well, it's, it's all talk, no action. And, in fact, everything that this government is doing, everything that they are trying to do, 
uh, is just going to make things worse. And the industrial relations legislation that they are pushing through is absolutely going to kill small and family businesses. And every single one of those costs are going to be pushed through uh, to the consumer. You know, most Australians are actually employed by small and family businesses, and a lot of those people's jobs are going to be at risk. And whilst with some of the claims they've made around this new emissions reporting businesses have to do, uh, they've said, oh, but it's only the big businesses that have to do it. Small and family businesses don't have to do it. Well, that is actually a furphy because if those small and family businesses form part of a supply chain for that company, they have to be able to give their emissions to the company for it to enable it to do its reporting. Right. So it is actually going to encapsulate a lot of these businesses. So, you know, we have to look at this holistically. How do we make our economy fit for purpose in this day and age? Yet this government seems to want to send us back to, to a pre-Hawk Keating Accord days. I mean, that's yeah. how far back they're pushing us. Yeah into this overly do- union-dominated market that's going to be... I mean, it's their war on the gig economy uh, is extraordinary and that's such a modern way of working for people now, mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. they want to remove these sorts of opportunities. And, yeah. you know, that just ma- makes things cost more. So, yeah. you know, it's not even so much about them putting money in the pockets of people through, you know, and there are initiatives that they could do that would save everyday costs to people. Uh, They talk about groceries. You haven't heard them say much, and I noticed, you know, you just said car insurance and green slip. That's a government cost, the green slip. But car insurance, health insurance, Mm. uh, home insurance, any of those insurance costs are up well over inflation rate. They're up in the teens. You know, groceries are sort of up around 8 or 9%. These were up 17, 18, 19%. Most of these financial industries, uh, you know, finance sectors, industry uh, insurance products. Yet we don't hear a word from the government on those. And they're the sorts of costs that, you know, the government could be looking at. It could be offsetting with, instead of giving us cash handouts like some previous Labor governments have, you give someone a coupon to pay one third of their car insurance for the year, for instance. But look at the insurers. Why has insurance costs gone up so much? Where is the oversight there? Is there not enough competition in the market? Is there collusion in the market? Like why is it going up so much? Yeah. Uh, yet no one mentions that, and that's a huge contributor. We know energy, they're obsessed with the renewable stuff, but they won't look at nuclear, they demonise coal, they actually can't work out what they're doing with the, you know, environmentally they're blocking offshore wind turbine with the port of pastings, but then they're pushing it everywhere else. You know, they just, there's just no coherency here. These guys have no idea what they're doing. And even if they want to give you, uh, you know, some sort of rebate over here, Every other lever they're pulling is making everything else more expensive. They are. That's exactly what they're doing. They're sort of moving around in the dark, unable to work out what the next step is, and no one is willing to come forward and lead. We don't have a leader. Anyway, I want to take a quick break and I'll come back and I want to talk to you about Penny Wong and her trip to Israel because this has, you know, developed into a Barney even within the Labor Party by the sound of it. We'll return with Holly Hughes right after this break on TNT. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers 
mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both of those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Lights is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk if you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Lozzie says on our chat box, uh, I think people better get back to basics. I still see people buying up at all the shops and retail stores. Their lattes at coffee shops maybe cut out these little luxuries. Um, and uh, Tony says, the car insurance was up closer to 30%. First time in my life considering not taking out insurance. Well, I don't have an insurance policy on my motorbike, and that's one of the things that I've decided to cut back on. Um, Foreign Minister Penny Wong is not visiting these massacre sites in Israel. It's not like as if she doesn't have time to do it. And I noticed that the Prime Minister was not too enamoured with her schedule. What's mm. happening, do you think? What are you reading? Look, I think this is just a continuation of the Labor Party talking out of both sides of its mouth when it yeah. comes to the Israel conflict. They've yeah. been caught out time and time again. Uh, they now are not going against uh, South Africa's push uh, in the uh, International Court of Justice for on the genocide claim, whereas most other Western allies have condemned that. I mean, we are just lagging behind uh, everywhere. Our foreign policy, our defence policy, all of those relationships that have been strong for decades, uh, this government is putting it all at risk. I mean, it's not only Penny Wong's disgraceful itinerary when she's over there walking both sides of the road uh, and the fact it's so important. You know, I love Israel and uh, look forward to being able to go back there, but it's such an extraordinary place. And if you've never been, it's, it's almost difficult to understand, um, especially for Australians, because we live on an island and it's really quite extraordinary to go up to the Golan Heights or to go to Surat in the south where you can see Gaza or up in the Golan Heights, you know, there's Lebanon, there's Syria, to actually see the borders. Or if you're, if you're in the, the uh, Red Sea, there's Jordan on the other side. So, you know, it's, it's in the Dead Sea. It's extraordinary that, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, how close everything is and to, and to get that sense and perspective. But for her not to visit where this atrocity occurred. I mean, the pogrom was the, the worst killing of Israeli and Jewish civilians since the Holocaust. And by not going to witness it, to not be able to have that perspective, to not be able to have um, 
I think, a visual representation of, of what the space looked like and where these atrocities occurred is a mistake. Uh, I think it's a big misstep by this government. I'm not sure his ministers even talk to him because every time Albanese's asked anything about what his ministers are doing, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, He oh, does. It's almost as if he he wasn't part of the email trail. It's, it's extraordinary how in the dark he is. So it's either incompetence or a choice of to not be, you know, to not be informed. I, I don't understand why he would have so little oversight and overview of something that internationally is going to be seen as so important. I mean, with regards to the Houthis and what's happening over there now, uh, we have sent so little support, military support. I mean, everyone uh, is just in shock that we did not send a boat when was requested by the US and we barely sent any personnel. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it does run the risk, I fear, of, of jeopardising our relationship with some of our biggest allies. Just you mentioned there what Anthony Albanese is privy to and not privy to. He certainly wasn't privy to a journey to Iowa by two Labor staffers, a senior advisor to himself, the Prime Minister and the Chief of Staff to Labor Government Minister Andrew Giles have upset the party, no doubt, by fronting up to Nikki Haley's rally in Iowa City this week. They even wore Nikki's badges. Are they turning? Have you ever been over for a US election? No. Oh, it is just awesome. Like, I was over for the 2004 election. On a, I was an official trip. In fact, it was where I met Milton Dick, the now speaker. Right. Um, it was sort of five libs, five Labor, two Nats. None of us were politicians. We were all, um, you know, party members. It was a young political leaders trip. Um, there's a, there's a, actually a lot of us that, that on that trip that are now in differing different parliaments, but um, we went to a John Kerry rally and I had a photo with John Kerry and then the next night we were at a George W. Bush rally with him, which was amazing. It is, it, it, they do it in a way that's just so different from anything um, we can imagine in Australia. So you think um, these two just fronted up for the party? Look, I think they might, if you're a political junkie and, you know, most politicians and staffers are kind of, you know, we love the politics, we love the campaign, we love that side of it. Um, wearing the buttons, interesting. I certainly never wore a John Kerry hat or T-shirt <laughs> or anything uh, when I was out with the Democrats, but uh, this was apparently not an official trip either. When when we went, it was an official trip, so um, we met with Democrats and Republicans and, and they were all officially uh, organised. I certainly did get myself a big W T-shirt um, <laughs> from the George Bush rally, um, but, yeah, look, so you've got some bipartisan sympathy for these this pair. Look, I think I look, I don't know them. I don't know, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they were over there just getting caught up in the spirit of it. Um, but I think when you're uh, like, I mean, as I said, we were there as as none of us were in politics. We were, you know, in our early twenties, most of us that went yeah. when I did the trips, and you know, it was an official State Department trip. But these guys seem to just be on a little bit of a tour. Um, I think though, the lesson in it is that back when we went, there's no photos of me and Milton Dick no. at a John Kerry rally, no selfies, Bush rally. Um, but these guys have posted it all over their social media. So I think that's that's probably the difference now is, you know, if you want to get caught up in the moment, you know, 
they're not voting for her. Who knows no. what they think? And personally, I quite like Nikki Haley, so I think they picked a good one. I think that maybe <laughs> might have been might have been a bit more outrageous if they were in a MAGA hat at a Trump rally. But um, I look, I just think it was silly putting that sort of stuff on social media. Keep yeah. it to yourself. Um, I kind of have some sympathy for them if they were just caught up in the political junkie of the moment. Um, so I'm probably being kinder to them than a lot in the Labor Party who are feeling not very impressed with them at all. They should just chill out. Come on, yeah. it's a holiday. Uh, one last one. I cannot believe that we've got almost, what's the word, keystone-like decisions need to be made within the Navy. We've got to kind of shelve our frigates because there's no one to go on board them. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary hearing some of these uh, cases where they're saying we don't have specific personnel, like it's not a, a total uh, lack of personnel, it's specific jobs that need to be done. Uh, but when you're talking about challenges to recruit, when you've got a Prime Minister who is allowing councils to cancel uh, citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day, basically embarrassed to be Australian, saying that our history and our heritage is shameful. What kind of message is that sending to young Australians yes. to say, I want to sign up? Good point. Uh, I want to be part of the Defence Force. We should be proud of them. I actually had a, a really lovely friend of mine over for dinner on Saturday night. He's ex-Navy. Uh, but I've spoken about him in the parliament before that when he got back from, he actually served in Afghanistan. Hilarious. He was in the Navy, but used to get quite seasick. So I was actually in <laughs> Afghanistan anyway. Um, but he, uh, when he got back from Afghanistan, he basically, he got off a commercial flight back in Sydney. No one there to greet him. No one there to say, thank you for your service. He was still serving, but had just finished the tour. Yeah. Uh, got in a cab to go to his hotel and it was actually an Afghani taxi driver, which gave him quite an amount of anxiety because he had literally just come out of a war zone yes, in Afghanistan. Right. And so the Defence Force does need to do better at how they treat their returning soldiers and, and defence personnel because, you know, that that to me is an appalling case. But, you know, this is this is stuff that has, has gone on, that there hasn't been a recognition. I do love the way the Americans will drive around with stickers on the back of their cars saying support our troops. Um, that sort of patriotism and pride in our in their defense force that we don't seem to have we with such knockers um of everything and yeah, you know the abc true. the abc and and you know whether it was um ben robert smith or, or you know they've just lost a, a defamation case on heston russell you know yeah. heston is an outstanding former soldier yet was absolutely defamed and dragged through the mud by our national broadcaster so there needs to be a shift so that we can start to attract people back to the defense force not make people embarrassed or ashamed if they want to serve our nation i think the the global issue we have the, with the culture to serve a country we're supposed to love is the problem and you Ooh. have nailed it that's exactly right you have nailed it and it's something that uh, those who lead the country should think very very seriously about and think about when they join in the whack 
uh, against certain sections of the community and against what this country is all about um, if they want to have recruits join the Navy, the Air Force or even the Army. It's very, very true. Hey, great to to catch up. I'll let you get back to your holiday and your children and that overcast weather, but uh, at least it's a break nonetheless. Pray for some sun tomorrow. No more driving lessons. Good, yes. Leave the driving (laughs) lessons to someone else. Thank you so much, Holly. Much appreciated. See you, Smithy. Have a good week. All right. From the Liberal Party, New South Wales Senator Holly Hughes on the program today. All right. I've got to take a break. I'm going to get you some news. And then soon after that, we're going to catch up and talk to Graham Wynn from a very flash recruitment um, company in Melbourne. There's so much happening in the workforce in 2024, and there's this tussle between bosses and employees over who and for how long people can work from home. It's coming to a head in this year, and we'll discuss that with Graham Wynn. Let's take a break for news on TNT. Big news, 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 news. A story which contains more than first meets the ear. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Tensions are threatening to explode in the Middle East as the Houthis turn their missiles on American-owned cargo ships in the Red Sea. Two former British politicians have reportedly acknowledged a link between the mRNA COVID vaccines and excess deaths in the UK. And China's calling for a large-scale international peace conference to discuss the establishment of a Palestinian state free of Israeli occupation. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Interesting. Couple of quick comments on the chat box. Uh, Warwick has something to say about the Navy in Australia. And Warwick says, if you look at the ships, they're all rusting. Well, I don't don't know whether that's true, Warwick. I don't know. But we're quite happy to um, park our helicopters and not send them to Kiev. So there's something wrong with that fleet. Uh, Yes, we have uh, ageing fleets in various sectors of the military. And yes, we have problems staffing them. We know that to be true, which is why our frigates are to be shelved. But you've got to do something about it. You just dedicate the money and say it's important that we've got up-to-date machinery and we've got an up-to-date defence force. Uh, If you don't dedicate yourself to a defence force, and Labor has had a history of not doing that, well, how are you supposed to defend yourself when called upon to do so? Or how are you supposed to help, um, you know, a a coalition of forces in the Red Sea to ensure that terrorists aren't taking aim at uh, freighters? Like, you know, you can't do anything if you don't have the resources or the equipment up to date, spend some money if that's what you think needs to be done. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean we need to be hawkish and say, let's join any kind of fight. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying you've got to have a strong defence force to contribute uh, militarily to ideas of allowing trade routes to to continue through, for instance, the Red Sea. Um, If you don't have the equipment, you can't um, assist in that program which is exactly what has happened to Australia. Now, I've got the founder and director of Superior People Recruitment with me now, covering the Greater Melbourne area, Graham Wynn. Happy New Year to you, Graham Wynn. And Happy New Year to you as well. People Recruitment with me now, covering the Greater Melbourne area, Graham Wynn. Happy New Year to you, Graham Wynn. And Happy New Year to you as well, Chris. 
Yeah, so much to talk about and so many issues that have been raised throughout the month of January about the workforce. And what we're about to talk about, I think, probably pertains to a number of countries around the world. There's this there's this, you know, the, the the work from home trend has continued since the pandemic was at its uh, at its worst. But now, um, despite the bribes and despite the threats from various bosses throughout 2023, there hasn't been too much change in the number of people who've gone back to work. Um, new data suggests bosses are growing tired of empty offices and may have leverage following fears unemployment rates could rise. SQM research founder Lewis Christopher believes most employers will be pushing for greater office attendance in 2024. But what do they do about that? Well, I think I think what he's saying is actually correct. At the moment, the job seekers, they have the bargaining power because there's such a shortage everywhere of good workers. So they can demand that a little bit more. That is changing and over the next 12 to 18 months, as the unemployment increases slightly and good workers come back into the marketplace, suddenly the employer will have more bargaining power because he'll have a choice of who to employ. So he'll be able to say, well, these are our rules now. If you want to work for us, these are the rules. And so that work from home will dwindle. The hybrid roles will reduce over the next 12 to 18 months. There is no doubt about that. The employers are definitely, apart from governments and large corporations, all other employers are wanting people back in the office. But they're having to do it a little bit carefully at the moment, but that will change. I say, over the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to see a huge push back and it will happen, people back in the office. But how do you do that? How do you say to someone, hey, listen, although we've had this arrangement whereby your expectation is that you're going to work four out of five days from home, You've got to come in now or you lose your job. Now, in more modern day workplace um, practicalities, I have not seen bosses able to sack people unless they've, uh, you know, taken taken money or, or placed the company into disrepute. It's not so easy to sack anyone anymore, as you know. Oh, it's a lot harder to get rid of stuff these days than it used to be 20 or 30 years ago, that's for sure. Um, but basically, I think there's two things. Firstly, if you're already employed in a full-time office-based role, then that's just as your contract was. So therefore, they can say you come back to your original agreement, which was five days in the office. So they can revert to that one. The arguments they can put forward, and the only reason you can have this work from home is if the employer cannot justify why you should be in the office. So as long as the employers can justify why they want you in the office, mm -hmm. they can insist on it. Now, if you've started a job recently and it's in your contract, hybrid or work from home, whatever, that you can't change those. That's an impossibility. But those that don't have that written in their contracts, which will be the majority of people, the employer can say, we want you back in the office. We feel it's better productivity. We think it's better for your mental health. This is what we want. They can therefore insist on that unless you can prove you can do the same job from home with greater productivity, greater efficiency, if you can prove that and they can't counterbalance that, then they can't make you go to the office. Most times that it's been tried recently, a few people pushed that one and the employer has won each time so far that it's been challenged. Yeah, that's interesting. Once uh, it goes to a tribunal or a, the Fair Work Commission, it seems as if the employers tend to win um, that's interesting, and I'm sure they'll be tested out throughout the course of 2024. But just on what you're, you're saying, the negatives associated with 
working from home. You see, when I raise this subject, I get emails and chat comments from people who are saying, no, I work from home and it is more productive than if I was distracted in the office. But uh, interesting to see this report uh, from KPMG. They surveyed 1,300 CEOs right across the world. The University of Newcastle Business School's Christina Badecki says working solely from home is associated with less co-worker support, higher conflict with both supervisors and co-workers. Um, there's also a suggestion of increased hassles, especially administrative hassles, higher job target pressure. The professor says research shows those working from home also experience negative impacts on their psychological well-being, including increased frustration, increased negative emotions, increased loneliness, and also some degree of anxiety. It's not so fabulous after all. No, and that's that's, that's in some way that's the get out of jail card for want of a better expression. Basically, an employer is responsible and has to make sure his staff are well looked after, their mental health is looked after, everything is looked after. The employer has that responsibility. So if he cannot say, I cannot give you the same level of cover or look after you as well if you're working from home, then that's where they can get you back in the office because he can no longer give you the sort of care factor he needs to give you as an employer yes. while you're working from home. Yeah. So that really, to me, is how most employers will get around this one. We are responsible for your well-being and your mental health. We cannot provide that for you while you're not here. And that so makes a great deal of sense. And I've got yeah. a friend in the UK who's in IT, and he was working full-time in the office. He's now working from home and says, look, I'm far more efficient. But the employer says, we want you back in the office because, yes, you're efficient, but you're working at hours outside of what you used to work. You're working at 9 o'clock at night time or on a Saturday. We're not open then. So, yes, you may be more efficient, but you're not during the working hours that you used to work, which is 9 to 5. So there's that challenge as well. If you are more efficient at home, are you still working the same hours or a different schedule of work hours, which could impact your employer? Yeah, and, and as someone who's employed a lot of people and as someone who's worked in teams primarily in, you know, over 45-odd uh, years, I have seen when groups get together, they don't have to purposely sit opposite each other. But even in the natural course of going into the tea room, the natural course of walking down the corridor or sitting there solving someone else's problems, accidental creative juices flow, Graham, and all of a sudden you've solved a problem you didn't even think was on the agenda. Absolutely right. And I think this, this if you're stressed or worried about anything and you're at home by yourself, that cannot be good for you. And just having people around you can ease that. And we all know life pressures everywhere at the moment are a problem. So I think you need to have people around you. And this isolation, I don't think it's the way to go. And I, I know someone who, for instance, works around this, their, their children's school hours now. Again, that's great, but they're doing night times or early mornings or weekends. Yeah. Their employer is complaining. But when we ring you, you're not available because you're not working the hours we now work. So that's the other challenge of this hybrid. Yeah, Mike says on our chat box, believe me, people bludge at home. Well, that might be true for some, but others I think are probably doing a little bit more than what they normally do. I think some are because they know they're under a bit of pressure to yeah. actually produce more and yeah. show that yeah. it can work. Yes. People who bludge will bludge regardless. Yeah. Just because they're from home won't matter. They'll bludge in the office as well. So yes. I don't yes. think working from home makes them bludge more than they ever would have bludged in the first place. But certainly some people are doing extra to justify, yes, that's why I need to, I can work from home because I've produced all this extra work for you. But they're oh, rare. 
I want to talk about ageism very quickly. Um, a 37-year-old woman trying to re-enter the workforce was left shocked and offended after a male employer told her she was too old for the job. Uh, Maria Nielsen applied for a position at a Sydney barber shop, but it was turned away at the final stage when the employee she would have replaced decided to stay on. The employer wrote back saying, I'm sorry, but honestly, I don't want to be rude, but with all my respect, as I have a lot of young clients, I'm looking for someone a bit younger to work with me. That is out and out ageism, Graham. It is in that aspect, yes, but I'll always come back to the one question. An employer should know what type of person will work in his business. And I've had many occasions where employers have come to me and said, I want male or female. I want this age range because that works in my workplace. Is it discrimination or ageism or is it simply an employer saying, this is what I know my business needs. This is what will work. So it's a real fine line, this one. It really is. Yeah. When it comes to a barber shop and <laughs> maybe you want late teens and early 20s to come in there and get their hair cut, I can't see the problem with having a 37-year-old hair cutter. I'd, I'd rather have a 37-year-old hair cutter. And I can, the only thing I can think of is the loud blaring music they have in there. The young kids cope with it better than the older people do. <laughs> yeah, it might be, you might be right. Now, this is a, this is a fabulous um, truth-telling exercise. Jodie Foster says Gen Z can be the worst to work with. She says she sometimes finds Generation Z really annoying, but she hopes she can help budding stars find their own path and learn how to relax. In an interview with The Guardian, the actor admitted she'd found the attitudes to work she had encountered difficult to understand. They're like, nah, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to come in at 10.30am. Or in emails, I'll tell them this is all grammatically incorrect. Did you not check your spelling? And they're like, why would I do that? Isn't that kind of limiting? <laughs> is she right? She's totally right. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, I, I get cover letters from job seekers and it's written in text speak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> thanks, THX. Yeah, exactly right, yes. And and they, when you say, well, you've got to check your spelling, well, I don't need to because I can do the job. Well, that doesn't matter. You still need to spell. That's pretty important in most jobs, being able to spell. Just check it. And with the technology these days, there's no excuse, basically. And I've got a number of employers not just in Australia, but in other countries as well that we work with, who actually will turn around and say, we don't want anyone of that age range because they're unreliable, don't stay too long unless they get a promotion in three months. And if they don't feel like coming to work one day because they've had an off day, they just don't come. Not because they're generally in crook, they just don't feel like it that day. Yeah, isn't it interesting? I, I don't know how many people I've employed, say, in newsrooms in places where I've worked. They've stayed there for three months and they're straight into your office, almost on the anniversary of that three months, to ask for a pay rise. Yep, absolutely correct. Happens regularly. And, and most companies will give you like a 12-month review, but when we're putting that sort of younger generation in, they're expecting a three-month review because, well, that's the end of my probation, therefore I get a pay rise. No, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. <laughs> I've got some research I'd like to put to you and get your feedback on. Research by International Workplace Group has found 78% of Australian hybrid workers want hybrid working policies as part of their company's ESG plans. Uh, hybrid working practices are also helping Aussies to save money, lower worker stress levels and increase their happiness. 
Around 56% of workers surveyed this year of workers said they are likely to resign their job if they need to commute long distances daily. Just over 35% of workers are unlikely to take a new job or role if they need to commute long distances daily. IWG said workers regard long commutes as impacting their productivity and negatively affects their relationship with their employer. The word entitled comes instantly to mind, Graham. Yeah, and look, I think travel is one of the issues. We normally use like a 45-minute time frame. Any further than that, it's too far. But what I find interesting is this, it's, they're saving money working from home. If you're working from home all day in summer, you've got your air conditioner blasting all day at home. In winter, you've got the heating going all day. I'm still not convinced it's cheaper working from home. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the the amount of, you know, like usually probably no one's at home, but you've got lights on, you've got computers activated. Yeah. Uh, I doubt whether uh, anyone has a cosy relationship with their boss so they can bring in their utility bills and he pays for them. Probably not, no. Maybe if someone working from home will try that one day. I'm doing your, I'm working for you, you should pay my bills for me as well. But I know when you work from home, your bills are skyrocketing, you're eight to 10 hours extra at home than you normally would be. I say heating, cooling, power, whatever else you're doing, it can't be cheaper. Yeah. One quick thing before we let you go, you mentioned earlier that there could be a bit of a spike in unemployment in yeah. 2024. And, of course, we've spoken in depth about the fact that there's going to be this um, uh, battle over working from home coming to a head throughout 2024 as well. What else do you see on the horizon? Um, We're getting a hell of a lot of immigrants in. Um, Will they be filling the job lines, the queues? Uh, How will employment be this time next year? I think it'll be in a much better shape. I think I've run this business now for 15 or 16 years. And this is the most challenging I've ever known it to find people. That will definitely change in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, as more people come in from overseas, the right people with the right skill set we're needing, that will straight away feed straight into the job market, which will actually push other people out of current jobs or not getting jobs that they probably shouldn't have got, which pushes them into other types of work they might need to do. And that's where unemployment increases. And that's where the employers will have far more choice than what they've currently got which will lead to ending the hybrid. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it all pans out. It should be a massive year, and in particular in the uh, workplace and in reference to employment and unemployment. Thank you so much for your time, Graeme Wynn. Great to have you on the program again. My pleasure, Chris. Take care. Fantastic. Founder and Director of Superior People Recruitment, covering the Greater Melbourne area, Graham Wynn, if you'd like to comment on any of that, jump on our talkback lines from the United States or Canada, 1-888-201-6425. From the UK, 0330-024-1026. And from Australia and New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. I noticed some people on the chat box have uh, wanted to take Holly Hughes to task over some things that uh, she said, wanted to take me to task about some things that I said about the Middle East. Well, jump on the talkback lines. What's preventing you having your say? Let's have an argument. Let's have a debate. That's what I love about this program. It's all at your fingertips. Give us a call on one of the talkback numbers. This is Chris Smith on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. I'm rarely surprised by what the mainstream media puts forth, but every once in a while, even I say, whoa, are you kidding me? Here's Jonathan Capehart with his opinion on who's responsible 
for the attempt to take Donald Trump off the ballot. These challenges are being brought by Republicans in those states challenging his Trump's ability to be on the Republican primary ballot. This is this has nothing to do with Democrats. Not I mean Democrats are surely cheering what's happening, but they're not the driving force behind this. And the the, the former president uh, doesn't want to go there, doesn't even touch it, um, tries to reverse it and put it on Democrats when the, the call is coming from within his own party. Come on, Jonathan, you got to be kidding. Of course, the judges in Colorado who kicked him off the ballot, four Democrats. The Secretary of State in Maine who kicked him off the ballot, a Democrat. Who's rooting for all this? Democrats. Give me a break. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe. From power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov slash air dash sensor dash toolbox. You're with Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio TNT. Now, I've got so much to tell you about, but very little time to do so. Uh, some news out of Cape Canaveral, courtesy of CDN. NASA and Lockheed Martin have taken the wraps off the X-59. Now, the X-59, a supposedly quite supersonic aircraft, may shape the future of both military and civilian air travel. The X-59 has been under development at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works for years, following a $248 million, US million dollar grant from NASA in 2018. Until now, the aircraft has only been seen in various stages of disassembly in the hangar. Its unveiling marks the first time the aircraft has been put on the tarmac in public view. The X-59 aims demonstrate that a plane can fly faster than the speed of sound, around 925 miles per hour for the X-59, without generating the window-rattling sonic boom that results from the uh, pressure wave. Now, you can look up X-59 and you, you can have a look at what has been on the drawing. It's been going for some decades. Uh, that we'd have a civilian aircraft that would be travelling at the speed of sound. And you could just imagine how revolutionised the travel industry would be if you could afford to travel on one of these supersonic aircraft. Uh, as I say, it's been in the planning stage for decades, but they're now putting it out on the tarmac and you can see a disassembled version of it. Just look up X-59, but that's news out of Cape Canaveral. Uh, just in terms of Facebook... And this is news out of London. Facebook was flooded with fake advertisements featuring a deep faked Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, ahead of the UK's general election that's expected to t take place this year. Can you imagine what fakes we're going to be exposed to in election campaigns? And that includes the US election campaign and what people allegedly have said about a particular policy or issue or about someone else? You're going to have to put it through the filter because not everything you see, read or hear will be the truth. It'll be a fake, courtesy of AI. Now, according to research conducted by communications company Fennimore Harper, 
143 different ads impersonating the UK's Prime Minister were posted on the social network just last month. 143 fakes. The researchers believe the ad may have reached more than 400,000 people. It also said funding for the ads originated from 23 countries, including Turkey, Malaysia, the Philippines and the United States. The amount of money spent to promote them from December 8 last year to January 8 this year was $16,500 US dollars. That was it. Uh, the fake ad showed a BBC newscast wherein Sunak said that the UK government has decided to invest in a stock market app launched by Elon Musk. And there are so many other politicians and celebrities right around the world that have been used for this kind of AI fakery, uh, promoting all sorts of brands and fake scams and and all sorts of terrible, terrible products. Um, I don't know how you stop it. I don't know whether you need to regulate it. I don't know what to do, but I do know it hurts those whose image and reputations have been used in the AI fakes. As you could imagine, they would be very angry indeed. Um, John Ruddick, the libertarian leader in New South Wales, who I speak to on a Friday on this program, has been posting something that he's come across, which we'll talk about on Friday, by the way, um, about what seems to be evidence of the development of a surveillance state in his state of New South Wales in Australia. He wrote on X, a surveillance state is being erected in New South Wales. They're doing so via local councils. Google smart cities and the name of your local council. You'll see it all hidden in plain sight. The New South Wales Libertarian Party, he writes, will lead the resistance at the local council elections this September. Now, he's been able to get hold of a tender. Uh, this is a New South Wales government tender, if I can bring it up here. Just bear with me a second until I get rid of a couple of pages that I was on. It's for offence detection systems. Councillors seeking proposals for an offence detection system that will provide council compliance officers with a centralised cloud-based system that uses advanced artificial intelligence, there we go again, using AI and machine learning capabilities to detect a variety of non-compliant activities occurring in the Brisbane area. These are satellite images, mounted cameras that will go straight to the cloud and accessible to those that the council deems needs access to all of that stuff. It's spying. It's spying by local councils in the public domain. Just get human beings on the site. If you think people are committing any kind of acts of crime against local government acts, like seriously, do we really have to have cameras in public spaces watching our every movement? I don't think so. Um, I've got a stack of emails that I'll try and get to. Uh, I'll have a good read of them after the program, because some of them um, are telling me some information that may turn into um, significant stories about uh, what BRICS is up to, uh, what's happening in the Middle East. So thank you very much for the emails that were sent today. My apologies for not reading them uh, live on air, but I just don't I want to be careful about this because you start can't start saying things about people that are incorrect or or is not the truth. So I just want to get on to those emails later tonight and I'll um I'll check them out. You know, it's interesting 
Um, Joe Biden keeps asking privately within the Democratic Party, why are people gravitating towards Donald Trump? Why is this happening to me? Why are my numbers so bad? Well, there's a story in the New York Post you should read. And it talks about the fact that according to polls, he too, Joe Biden, has done nothing about people's grocery bills because their grocery bills have shot up by 25% and people are not happy. See, it's okay to go over and help Israel fight Hamas. It's okay to do big things on the world stage, as Biden likes to do, including what he's doing in Ukraine. But at the end of the day, people are hurting. There's a cost of living crisis going on. Their grocery bills have gone up 25%. And as this article writes, he's simply not doing enough to help Americans pay their bills. This is what people care about. When a politician's going to realise it's not about what's happening outside of your country. It's what's happening to individuals in your country that matters most to them. And if you don't cater for their needs, they will vote you out at the next election. And that's exactly the direction that Joe Biden is heading in, the exit door, because he hasn't cared, as hasn't Anthony Albanese in Australia, more transfixed on other less important issues. There's a lesson for politicians right around the globe. I will leave you in the capable hands of Dean Mackin. I'm out of here. Let's get together at the same time tomorrow. You know where we are, TNT.